0: game of poker take our tin cups in our hand while we gather around the cook's tent door where dry mummies of hard crackers are given to each man oh hard crackers come again no
1: more hey everybody welcome to the antifada our first episode of a new era Um, A lot of shows I've recently, like I was listening to WNYC this week, and they're consciously trying not to talk about uh, the T word, Uh, but we're we're the opposite here. We didn't talk about Trump for the last four years, and uh, so today we're allowed to talk about him again.
0: We're giving ourselves license to say the T word.
1: So we're going to talk about Trumpism and the last four years, and uh, but we're also going to be talking about the uprising and whiteness and race treason and all the stuff we enjoy talking about here on the Antifada. And we have two guests from uh, a, a journal that I think covers this stuff probably better than anyone else or as good as anyone else. It's called the Hard Crackers Journal. We have Jared Shanahan and Jana Corti. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having us. And thank you for those kind words. They mean a lot. Um, I know we got a difficult name, you know, Hard Crackers is not an easy, easy sell. So I uh, appreciate that.
3: And of course, the reference, as we all know, is to a popular song from the Civil War, um, which actually uh, I think is a fact only known to two people on Earth. <laughs> One of whom is Noel, who gave us the name um, and is no longer with us. And the other one is White Trash Rob Lynn from Blood for Blood.
0: Um, <laughs> he said, I love the title, Jared. Is that from the Civil War song or what? But was Blood for Blood the ones that were on that Discord comp that went, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you and fuck society too? Or is that someone else? Oh, yeah, that's a classic. That's Can a Can we just song. talk about BFB for the next two hours?
1: <laughs> well, they have an interesting song about race treason, right? Or you could interpret it that way.
3: Oh no, totally. Um, I mean, I think that in, in an organic way, like over the course of the last like two decades, Rob has been making his way to basically the race trader
1: position. Um White Trash Anthem? That's what it's called. Yeah. Um, Don't call. I mean, it, what's the What's the lyric? Don't say that I'm white. Something like that.
3: Well, it's it's, it's interesting. It's, I ain't your kind of white.
0: Oh, I ain't um, your kind of white. Yeah. That that well,
4: band are we talking about?
0: Uh, blood for Blood, Boston fucking hardcore. <laughs> um, oh boy. Yeah, no, I mean,
4: that could be a whole bonus episode.
0: Yeah, that's they're true. Making up for minor threats, uh, guilty of being white. They're trying to just like erase that through history by doing good songs instead.
4: <laughs>
1: yeah, I think on the spectrum oh of, of guilty of being white and uh, white trash anthem, Hardcrackers is, is way on the blood for blood side. Um, but. So so what what is Hardcrackers? Why did you choose that uh, obscure name? And and, uh, where does the journal come from and what are you trying to do?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. So to kind of loop it back to what Jared starts to talk about sorry y'all lost me at the hardcore scene i was like what
0: <laughs> we, we lost most <laughs> of the <laughs> listeners too don't
2: worry i know I you're too like, old school uh, to know about this these new bands of, uh, reference to pornography anyway but the point is so Park crackers goes again back to the adaptation of the stephen foster tune who i had the pleasure of Noel actually got on the harmonica one of the last times i got to see him uh, and he played the song for me, and I didn't even know that he was that musically talented. So that was a nice treat. Uh, but it comes—it goes back to um, the Civil War when Union soldiers sang the song um, and it was accomp- accompanied by the lyrics, come again, no more. Uh, and it was a comment on basically the crackers right, that they were being fed uh, during the Civil War. So hard crackers the name really identifies with um, the Civil War, with reconstruction, with the fight to end slavery, with um, imagining freedom more broadly and imagining a new society, right? Uh, And it really honors um, that attitude of uh, really carrying on one of the greatest revolutions in American history. The left, um, you know, leftists, if you talk to leftists, they could tell you the minute details of the Russian Revolution. Um, They could tell you, you know, what Lenin did or did not do. Uh, they could tell you about the Kronstadt Rebellion, or you know they could talk about the Spanish Civil War. Um, but they could tell you very little about the American Civil War. Um, and I think Noel's contribution in that is really important because he showed in his political work, um, he showed how um, how that was a really important revolutionary moment, right? Um, That white supremacy, race, uh, the battle against white supremacy is an integral part of uh, any revolutionary anti-capitalist politics, right? So Heartcrackers is also inspired inspired by, um, uh, you know, CRL James, who was a West Indian Marxist, um, and his own critique of pop culture, where he recognized also um, ordinary people, right? So, you know, for instance, the Haitian Revolution was, you know, enslaved people who took history into their own hands and, you know, revolted, right? And led the, the biggest revolution um, in global history um, and led to, you know, to Haiti being independent. So, similarly, you know, ordinary people could be drawn um, into this potential for revolution, right? Because inside them exists these two worlds, right? This almost inner civil war. On the one hand, um, you know, this concern with their misery, exploit, exploitation, with wanting to um, reserve those privileges, right, especially among white folks, the desire to maybe push away black people to to just uh, to claim that role on, on top of the hierarchy, but also on the other hand, um, the desire for a new society, right, the desire to actually um, go beyond that boundary, th- those racial boundaries, right, um, and to really be, be part of this human human family and of greater humanity, um, and you know, Noel uh, was also a part of Race Trader, uh Him and John Garvey, which is uh, the second uh, co-founder of Hardcrackers, Crackers, they were both in um, Race Trader that appeared in, in the 90s and 92 with the slogan "Treason to Whiteness is Loyalty to Humanity," and again, whose goal was to analyze how whiteness was made and remade over and over again. Um, so you know. We're really happy to be part of uh, this project that that um, is trying to make sense of um, this, the inner contradictions and in the lives and uh, hearts and minds of ordinary Americans.
3: Something that Noel um, liked to emphasize was that, um, you know, quoting Frederick Douglass, um, the Civil War was about slavery. Um, The South wanted to take it out of the Union and the North wanted to keep it in. Um, And in the course of the war, um, it became um, an explicit uh, struggle against um, chattel slavery. And, uh, you know, what Noel would always say was that uh, most of the northern soldiers um, who marched off to battle um, did not do so, imagining themselves um, as fighting against slavery. Um, And in a short amount of time, they were singing the song uh, As he died to make men holy, we will die to make men free. Um, And so the significance of this um, from the view of the present is that um, great historical change, great revolutionary change um, is made not just by these leaders who come down to us in the textbooks, but by hundreds of thousands or millions of, um, of what Noel would call ordinary people, Um, who might be, you know, in the parlance of the young people today, incredibly problematic. Like um, a lot of northern soldiers uh, who, you know, died face down in the mud fighting against the Confederacy. If you pulled them off the battlefield and asked them what they thought about, you know, African-Americans, they might say something that was incredibly fucked up, Um, you know, and they might have just terrible attitudes. Uh, But what people do um, in um, moments of truth Um, you know, when when there's actual stakes um, and they have to make a decision is much more important than the attitudes that people either have or think that they have.
1: Yeah. And so for that (laughs) reason, Hard Crackers is kind of trying to give voice to ordinary people in in essays that might be political uh, or leftist, but not necessarily. Right. Like you really try to emphasize just common stories of, of everyday life.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, And also, again, these contradictions that people hold. Right. Um, And I and the idea is that, you know, ordinary people have these contradictions, as Jared said. Right. Um, And they necessarily that that their actions and what they think may be separate. But that most Americans actually have this um, these this internal civil war happening in their um, in their minds. Um, and that they may be called to action, and they may do things totally different.
3: And it's interesting. I mean, we have this this popular meme, right, of the milkshake duck, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure your listeners know about this because they're stuck in that like <laughs> Chapo housecape of Twitter. Um,
1: they know about ducks you don't. You've never even heard of.
3: Um, but but so the joke of milkshake duck is whenever somebody um, becomes celebrated on the internet for doing something good. Um, it is revealed that at one point in their life they did something problematic. Um, and that's basically supposed to be the end of our interest or admiration or respect for that person. Um, and I mean, I think that if you're if you're serious about um, about politics and political transformation and the transformation that people undergo when they do politics, I mean, I think it would be more surprising to find somebody who doesn't have some kind of skeletons in their closet doing something very good and noble, than it would be to to, to unearth the commonplace fucking well-known established fact that just about everybody walking around in our society was socialized in an incredibly toxic and nasty way. Um, And people who are attracted to liberatory politics actually had to do a lot of work on themselves to overcome the attitudes that they were socialized to have. And this is especially true of white people.
2: Yeah, and I think that um, I think that's a really good also segue into just overall, I mean, as we, I hope, you know, continue maybe to talk about in this episode is that it has a lot to do with also how um, Noah's contributions to understanding whiteness, um, you know, not only in terms of just um, the messed up, ha- like habits and things that people say, right? So uh, today, for instance, there's a lot of um, focus on like PC culture, right? Um, and, you know, we're kind of seeing then like, Kind of this um, rebellion against that to some degree or another, but really the focus on whiteness as um, as deeply embedded in institutions and reproduced by institutions, right? So not necessarily uh, just by the actions of people, right? So it's easily, we could easily, you know, some folks could easily make the argument that, you know, for instance, police violence, right? Police violence uh, and killings of black people, you know, is a few bad apples, right? And I mean, it's hard to probably say that now after... So many videos uh, have come up showing otherwise. But, you know, so it, 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 there's almost this focus that racism is the actions of a few racists, right? And if we were to just weed them out, if we were to weed out these bad apples, and it doesn't really look at the institutions. uh, doesn't look at how whiteness and white supremacy is reproduced by these like seemingly well-intentioned institutions, right? Uh, beyond policing, the welfare state, education, right? So I, I think it has, you know, it's just a deeper look into
4: um, into those structures as well. Word. So let's talk about that for a minute because we have seen a lot of the white proletariat, um, getting on board with black liberation in record numbers this year in the George Floyd uprising, as well as, you know, the rest of the proletariat. Um, but at the same time, we also have working class whites forming a really substantial, junior partner in the Trump coalition. And, you know, maybe this is a sidebar that complicates things too much, but also Trump actually made inroads with minority voters in 2020. Um, so what do you think is going on here? And what's your kind of prognosis for the future of whiteness, which as, as you've so outlined so well in your journal is a real counter-revolutionary force in this country?
2: <laughs> All right, well, I think there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I, I'll just say that first I thought it, w- I think it's really amazing. And I didn't realize how amazing it was until I moved outside of the bubble of New York city. So I grew up in New York city. I grew up in the Bronx. Um, and you know, I, oh sorry, sorry, just to preface, I grew up, um, I'm Albanian. I grew up a, around a lot of racist ass Albanians. So uh, I was, you know, I, you didn't have to tell me that racism or, you know, the ethnic whites were racist or had to convince me much of that. So, you know, I just thought it was amazing that the George Floyd protest rebellion movement involves so many, if that it was a multiracial movement, that so many uh, white folks were drawn to it. And that was more significant, I think, in place when I moved to Knoxville, Tennessee, which is where I live now, um, because I do think... New York and seeing that kind of um, seeing it in New York is very different from like Knoxville, Tennessee where I'm driving and I'm constantly seeing confederate flags, Trump stickers, Blue Lives Matter flags, um, MAGA hats, right? And this is just like my regular day-to-day uh, experience. Like one of my neighbors has a life-size Trump doll that is saluting. That's creepy.
0: That's very, very creepy. <laughs> in Someone in should students, do a, of the a wellness check on that. <laughs>
2: And the Trump doll was stolen uh, This was before the election Maybe it just um, came to life And went
0: off, went off on its own <laughs> Or maybe some antifas were doing praxis
3: It was stolen by an even bigger Trump fan <laughs> yeah, I
2: was just amazed that she found The second Trump doll Within a span of a month To replace it It was kind of quite amazing um, But the point is that I think in in, in the South uh, in smaller cities across America, the multiracial coalition actually was more important uh, than outside of major cities, right? So, for instance, I'll just give you an example. I was driving to Dunkin' Donuts, my favorite place, uh, and you know, I would just see all these young white girls who were like bumping N.W.A. I was like, what? And then, um, you know, who had like Black Lives Matter stickers and banners on their cars, and um, you know, and I, I think parts of the South are, are still, are still, um, dangerous in that way. Right. To have, to have like this outward right support for BLM. So I did, I do think that the protest movement was really important in terms of whiteness because it drew these hard lines in the sand for a lot of white people, um, in terms of, you know, uh, claiming what what it meant to be an anti-racist. Right. It no longer meant to just say, Oh yeah, I have a black friend and I, you know, I'm against racism, but it meant to, for you to take to the streets, um, You know, and oftentimes fight alongside, uh, you know, young black kids and Latino kids to, you know, to fight the police or whatever. So I I thought that was a really important um, like the participation of so many whites in the movement um, and seeing it from the vantage point of the South uh, where, you know, I, I think it's more significant than just like the northern large northern cities
3: answering jamie's question um and this is something that john and i have written about um, a lot and this was a concern of Knowles in his final years um is that the the wages of whiteness the so-called wages the racial bribe that um the ruling class pays to white workers um in exchange for um for solidarity with black workers that that those wages kind of suck these days um the the united states is home to um Large areas um, that are predominantly white, which are the the sites of the kind of um, disinvestment, structural violence, misery and premature death um, that we typically associate with um, the ghettos that uh, people of color were forced into um, in the 20th century. And um, I think it's worth considering that um, it's it's no longer um, such a great thing. Um, to be white and in fact the way that um, whiteness is often defined even, even in um, social justice and left circles, um, white privilege is often defined as the absence of police violence. So think about it, you can walk to and from your terrible minimum wage job, um, you know, that barely pays your rent and keep your lights on and you are not accosted and shot by the police in the process and that is considered a form of privilege. And I mean, I'm not trying to downplay the um, the immense gaps in um, in assets, um, in quality of life and even life expectancy between black and white Americans. Those are still very real. Um, but what we have seen um, in the last 30 or 40 years, um, you know, amid this brutal regime of austerity that's undertaken by both the uh, the state and the ruling class, um, in the private sector, um, is um, this uh, erosion of the tangible uh, benefits of whiteness? And what you have when the tangible benefits are gone, all you have left are the psychological wages, right? What Du Bois called the psychological wages of whiteness, meaning that you know you live under terrible conditions, a ho- you're horribly exploited at work, um, uh, but you can look in yourself in the mirror and say, you know what? At least I'm not black, yeah. um, and in that way, um, the current the resurgence of white nationalism and open ideological racism that we've seen in the last four or five years um, has a character to it that reminds me of the way that Adorno described the Third Reich. It, it was a suicide mission. It was, this, it was the assertion of this identity um, and, and in, through, through madness, um, through um,
0: the repressed recognition that you were headed towards your own doom. Uh, you you make a nod to this in your piece, Prelude to a Hot American Summer. You mentioned an important thing that happened in the 1970s, which we know was a period of crisis and austerity. There was created a, a kind of loose coalition of whites on the one side and the police state on the other side. And that's interesting to, to, to I'd be interested in you um, explaining that a little bit more. But what you posit then is that the police have been central to social reproduction for the last 40, 50 years. And this coalition has existed. But are you saying that this coalition is breaking down at this moment?
3: Well... I wouldn't want to be overly optimistic, but the, um, one of the great um, differences between this last wave of um, rebellion that we saw and the rebellion of the 1960s, um, which preceded the, uh, the onset of this austerity regime, um, was the, the racial composition. And uh, Thomas Segrou, you know, the, the authority on urban crisis, uh, wrote this in the early days of the rebellion. Um, has basically said like the amount, the amount of uh, young white people you see participating in this is nothing like we, what we saw in the urban rebellions of the mid sixties. Um, and you need to think about who um, these, these young white people's parents are and who their grandparents are. And I mean, without being too reductionist, um, these are very likely people um, who owned property and, um, in exclusionary areas where only white people could uh, get loans and buy homes, um, who you know um, fled fled the cities right um, when the racial composition was changing amid uh, migration from the south, um, and who built um, an entire fucking fantasy world in suburban America around this cult of whiteness based on f- fear of the cities. Um, fear of non-white people, um, the, the exaltation of white mediocrity, and the degradation of um, the excellence of non-white people. Um, th- that, is the, that is the lineage of, uh, I would guess, the majority of the young white people who are now coming into the streets and putting their bodies on the line and being beaten and pepper sprayed. And, you know, a few people have even been killed. Um, all to say that we are no longer complicit. We are no longer going to be passively complicit or um, even actively complicit um, in um, structural racism and white supremacy in the United States. Um, And We we are here to tell you that we are not our parents, we are not our grandparents, and this is a new era.
2: Yeah, and I just want to add to that. I think, um, you know, I mean, to some degree, I think there's been some... Uh, some ultra-left analysis of this too, right, the generations and um, the fact that, like, Millennials, Generation Z, um, the conditions that they face is just so different also from their parents, right, so going... I mean so many of us are trapped in cycles of debt. I mean when I look at my student loans I'm like man Biden is talking about forgiving 10,000 that's nothing. <laughs> that's Wait, like <laughs> He's
3: that saying that's <laughs> Huh?
2: Yeah. And it's like crazy, right? And I think um that I think that's also um the that so many uh young white folks, right? like are are facing um Debt, right? They 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 don't have. They're not gonna have the economic security uh, that baby boomers have, right? It's almost this like that. I think that's part of the baby boomers' means too. There's almost like this, this uh, jealousy, right? Of to some degree, right? Of like the security that the baby boomers had. Um, you know, that millennials just don't have, right? Um, So it's dead. And also I would argue that it's the pandemic. I think the pandemic to some degree revealed this interconnection between people, right? That, um, you know, it had to do, like society had to cooperate. Um, So I think it it, it helped people um, understand a little bit more how their fate was tied up with someone else's fate. Right. Um, And then on top of that, you are just constantly seeing, you know, black people be murdered on social media all the time. Right. And if you're you know, even if you do believe that the role of the police is there to serve and protect and to help everyone, man, these videos are just constantly debunking that myth. Right. Um, And um, so I I think that's these are all like part um, parts of it as well that, you know, come together. And I think, yeah. Well, anyway, we could go on. It's just like the, all the things that this generation faces, like climate change right there's like there's just so many catastrophes. Um, I think there is like this 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 moment of realization that is like, all right, we, we're in this together, right. And part of being in this together means to to challenge um, the ways in which whiteness, right white supremacy um, have, you know, in many ways been, been a, a dividing force, have been a force that has reproduced. Uh, like all the messed up inequalities and things that exist in society, right? And it's, I think there's like a new generation that's willing to challenge that beyond um, just kind of like the rhetoric, right? Which is, you know, the what the Democrats do, right? Um, we're gonna end white supremacy, right? Without actual action.
1: One point that Ignatayev made that uh, I think, I can't say it enough is that when white people struggle they need to do it with an understanding that overthrowing white supremacy is good for them as well that they actually get their own liberation by rejecting the false bargain that white supremacy offers and yeah to be optimistic we could say that in the the struggles over the past year the George Floyd uprising the unprecedented amount of white participation in a, in what is a struggle for for black liberation indicates that maybe that uh, false bargain of white supremacy is being recognized, perhaps for the first time, or it's becoming clearer. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, on the other hand, I worry that so much of white participation in it has come proclaiming itself as an ally, or you know, uh, or describing itself in these alienated ways, as like, or like, you know, the, this, this logic of like white people to the front of, you know, taking a knee and this kind of self-flagellating mentality. Um, there's a lot, I saw a lot of that as well as a lot of participation of white people in like riots and confrontations with the police. Um, so I guess I, I, if we weren't being optimistic, like what, what do you think some of the dangers are of the way the uprising played out or the way it's being remembered or recuperated? If you follow me.
3: I think that's a great question. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the, um, critical appraisals of race and racism that we have as leftists right now um, come from the university um, and from other middle class settings, um, especially the nonprofit um, sector. And so um, a lot of the um, the theories that people first discover when they begin to ask themselves what it would take to fight back against white supremacy are theories that sound very good in the classroom and that might work in a human uh, resources setting, but that are absolutely fucking useless in organizing settings. Um, this idea that you need that white people need to defer uh, to to um, some kind of abstract black consensus on all political questions, right? Um, if you're learning this in a classroom, it makes perfect sense. I mean. If you go to a protest against white supremacy and you're a white person, you should listen to what a black person has to say and you should follow their leadership. And that, I mean, anybody who debates that in a class, you know, it might be some kind of contrarian troll. But when you actually get into the field, when you actually put boots on the ground, you discover, oh, wait, um, there's actually a lot of different black people here. Um, one of them's an anarchist, one of them's a liberal, one of them's a Stalinist. One of them is talking about five G towers. Um, I'm actually going to have to um, make a political decision about who I support and who I am willing to follow and who I'm willing to work with and call my comrade. And that cannot that decision cannot be made on the basis of the person's identity alone. I actually have to evaluate the content of their pol- of their politics, how they understand the world, how they understand themselves as acting in it, um, and so. I think with with any kind of big upsurge like we saw over the summer, um, there's going to be a lot of really bad praxis. Um, You know, after Occupy Wall Street, just about every political tendency in the United States had um, at least one critique of intersectionality theory and what a disaster it was um, for structuring, um, organizing settings. Um, and I think that it's just something that we need to get through. And it's all the more reason why um, there should be more theories of racial difference, anti-racist praxis coming from an explicitly working class perspective, uh, because the 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 garbage that the middle class serves up, um, you know, the human resources kind of woke nonprofit theory will only rise to the top when there's no serious alternative.
2: I was just going to add that I think part of the I agree that there is there's a way in which um, anti-racism has become the domain of kind of academia, nonprofits, and it has lost uh, the, the its social movement edge, right? And I think that has a lot to do with when, when was the last time that you know white people participated en masse against the institutions and the society that they lived in, right? I, I would say the the last last significant participation of whites towards the creation of a new society or at least grappling with the society they existed in was the 60s. Right. So I I think there is something that has happened to um, to to whiteness, to racism, to anti-racism from the sixties onwards, where again, because of the ways in the, the 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 winds of the civil rights movement, the ways in which um, you know legal discrimination based on race specifically was outlawed, it really made racism seem like it was the work of individual racists. There is no institutional racism, obviously. Leftists know better, and regular folks know better. Black folks know better a lot better, right? But I, I think there is a way in which um, like anti-racism really became the domain of uh, we could think we could fix the system in these small cosmetic ways. Uh, but it's not fundamentally about altering and overturning the institutions and society and looking towards something new. Right. So, I mean, I think I welcome these these uh, the anti-police like the the rebellion, because I think it gave um, is giving new newfound um, uh, practice, right, to every day, to to uh, to to anti-racist white people to participate in. Right. And I think Occupy gave some involvement. Right. So in the past decade, we've seen, you know, here and there involvement on, you know, the um, on the part of a lot of young white folks. Right. But I, I think that there is just like so much to overcome because not only is the anti-racism the domain of um, academia and nonprofits, but we also live very atomized lives, right? I mean, yeah, of course, people have more you know, more friends, uh, you know, across race lines. Right. But we still live in a very segregated America. Right. So what and I see this. I mean, when I tell people I'm from New York, they're like ready. (laughs) You know, they're like touching the gun on their (laughs) belt. Right. They're like, you know, so there's like all these um, there's such a division in terms of geography too, by by race um, that I, I think all of that is part of um, how folks experience um, whiteness, how they experience uh, life in America. So that's what's amazing about these protests is because it brings people into the street where all sorts of things can happen, right? So we saw a lot of like that deference, right? Uh, And I saw this a lot in Louisville, right? Where you see young whites, um, you know, really kind of showing deference to uh, black leadership, all right. And a lot of times, you know, the black leadership was not very militant. Right. Or whatever. Um, and that's just one example. But there were other examples of extreme opposite. Right. Where you saw, um, you know, young white people shield, you um, shield their black friends from the police baton only to find out what the police was beating both of your asses right so i think there's like i was like that's what you that's a lesson in whiteness right there so you know i think there's something to um so much could happen in the street but i do think um and i i think that's what i mean about like uh that that uh that power that um, that academia and nonprofits have had over anti-racism is broken apart and these conversations are happening. Um, And I think for those reasons, Noel Ignatieff, John Garvey, um, that generation really contributed to to how we think about whiteness beyond academia. Right. And it's actually so ironic that uh, they came up with race trader, right at a time when Whiteness, just at a time when whiteness was really becoming a a, a main um, a main part of like the academic left, so to speak. Right, everybody was writing, started to write about whiteness and where it comes from. Right, and um, and they were like really you know, they were really trying to broaden our understanding beyond that. Right, beyond just like these academic conversations about what is whiteness.
1: You mentioned before that you didn't think that anyone was really talking about revolution. Anymore, and of course, there are some people talking about revolution now, or, or better to say, insurrection. Uh, oh. So that's uh, my way of transitioning to some of your writing about the last days of the Trump campaign and the sort of uh, you know the 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 lame duck session and the uh, the insanity of the Trump movement leading up to the January sixth storming of the Capitol. Um, you've both attended Trump events. And uh, Jared, you wrote a really great kind of analysis on the the spectacle of the the Capitol siege, Um, and uh, I think it really works well with what we were just talking about because a lot of writing about what makes these Trump people or QAnon people is this idea that like deep down below everything it comes down to the financial crisis and the crisis of the legitimacy of democracy and. Institutions not being funded the way they used to be, and stuff like that. And um, I think that place places too much emphasis on this, or or imagines too much that like the system is broken and we just need to fix it. Like I read one piece uh, in Jacobin recently saying that if the Sanders platform or if like the DSA platform could just be put into power, that QAnon people would just be won over to it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's really <laughs> unimaginable, come, but uh, I guess- Yeah, they used uh,
2: to come down to Tennessee. Jacobin used <laughs> to come to Tennessee to talk to folks out here to convert them to socialism. <laughs>
1: yeah. So uh, I guess, you know, everybody's writing about QAnon and and, uh, and the, the Trump people these days. Uh, how do you think your writing has been different from that? Or or just generally, like, how do you see this militant right movement that's come so entrenched over the last four years?
3: So I can speak a little bit about the article that I wrote called The Big Takeover. Now, I wrote this roughly within 24 hours of the um, of the capital takeover. So it's so I was reading uh, the, um, the 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 initial hot takes um, that, you know, people compulsively tweet all day about everything um, and. I was struck by the poverty of the analysis. I mean, first of all, there has been this kind of liberal and left liberal obsession over the last five years with the personage of Donald Trump Um, and just just obsessed with him. Um, And as we know, the liberals major complaint about Trump was not anything that he did in his policies. Right. It was the way that he presented himself the way that um, the way that he was unpresidential and all. And we don't need to talk very much about that because we all know that, um, you know, Joe Biden could do very much all of the same things that Trump did. And as long as he did it in a presidential way, right, um, you know, um, most liberals would be on board with it. Um, So there is this obsession with Trump that was insistent on hanging the rebellion around his neck, the rebellion at the Capitol, that is. And I decided to approach it from the opposite tack and say, fine, Trump created um, an opening for a lot of these kind of fringe um, far-right groups uh, to step into the conservative mainstream. And as many of you know, this has been a dream of a lot of these kinds of white nationalists for a long time. They've they've tried... um, Numerous times over the decades to get a stronghold within the Republican Party from which they could poach um, traditional conservatives and turn them into real hardcore fascists. Right. Um, And Trump was actually the occasion for this. Right. Um, I'm going to stay away from the endless debates about whether Trump is himself a fascist um, and just point out that Trump has enabled um, a milieu within the American right um, a, a zone of indistinction where somebody like Richard Spencer um, could speak to a young Republican's uh, student group or something like that um, and win them over to the hard stuff um, and so I wanted to examine the Capitol riot as um, as a social movement as the um, and not just the end point of a social movement, um, which I think would be kind of boring, but actually as the beginning of one, as the generative moment of a new form of far-right politics. Because if you look at, at our side of things, um, generations of, um, of leftists are defined by these moments, these upsurge moments, Right. I mean, you go to meetings a lot of times and the the people there, you can look around the room and say, okay, you were politicized by anti-globe. You were politicized by occupy. And you can, you can see who came in during what, what big spectacular moment. Um, and I think that it's no different than the right. Um, and that we can actually view this, um, this event, this big spectacular event as something that is generative of a new type of politics. Um, and that will, you know, be comprised of the all of the different actors who came before it, um, right, but will not be reducible to those actors. Another example is if you read um, The Making of the English Working Class, um, Thompson does a great job of charting all of the weirdo little little quasi-religious sects and guilds and um, um, her- heretics and all the rest who are running around um, in the prehistory of what we now call like the traditional workers' movement in England. A final, um, a final point that I wanted to make in the article um, was that I don't think that it's helpful to go head over heels for these conspiracy theories about how the whole thing was orchestrated by the state. Um, you know, I think that there is evidence that there are individual actors within state agencies who thought that this was right on Um, you know there's that photo of the cops um, you know taking selfies with the the um, insurgents but you could also look to photos of cops taking selfies with black lives matter protesters and taking a knee and all the rest right it doesn't mean that the cops plan those rebellions Um, and uh, simultaneously i think that it's probably true that there were less security forces at the Capitol that day than there would have been um, had it been a Black Lives Matter protest. And that's just a fact. You can actually look at what kind of security they used for BLM stuff and what kind of security they used um, for the Trumpers. Um, but I worry that obsessing over um, this kind, these kinds of cloak and dagger theories uh, blinds us to what's actually in front of our face. Um, and my partner actually pointed out this, um, this great passage, uh, from an Eve Sedgwick essay on paranoia, um, that I'm going to read very quickly. Um, Sedgwick talks about, um, in the early days of the AIDS epidemic, um, she's talking to an activist friend of hers, um, about, um, about the epidemic, um, and about their activism, and Sedgwick finally asks the question to her friend that was um, on a lot of people's mind at the time, which was, where did this thing come from? Do you think that it might have come from the government? Um, and now I'm going to quote from the essay. Any of the early steps in its spread could have been either accidental or deliberate, she said she being Cindy Patton, her friend. But I just have trouble getting interested in that. I mean, even suppose we were sure of every element of a conspiracy, that, Af- that the lives of Africans and African-Americans are worthless in the eyes of the United States, that gay men and drug users are held cheap where they aren't actively hated, that the military deliberately researches ways to kill non-combatants who it sees as enemies, that the people in power look calmly on the likelihood of catastrophic environmental and population changes. Supposing we were ever so sure of all of those things, what would we know then that we don't already know? And I think that's a really great question. And I think that it's a question that we can raise to probably 99% of the writing that American leftists do. I hate to say it, but it's just like the umpteenth article that proves that America is in fact a racist place. It's like, yes, we understand. Let's, let's, let's focus on what's in front of us that we don't already know about that. We don't already understand. Um, and, Let's see where that gets us. And so that was the spirit in which um, I approached uh, the capital takeover. Um, And I've gotten some pushback and some good response, but I think over time, the lion's share of the article will stand up.
2: Okay. Um, I think another thing I've been thinking a lot about, um, the capital takeover that's important. It almost feels like, I remember when I saw it and I was like, shit, I was like watching all these, white people scaling the capitol building um uh one dude the q shaman with you know the the bison headdress uh you had the orthodox jewish dude who i'm like was he from brooklyn or his dad was from brooklyn uh and he was holding on to the to the riot shield right and you know uh and had like the animal whatever covering Um, it just seems so bizarre. Right. And I think what I appreciate about Jared's piece is that, you know, there there is um, there's a sense in which people can simply approach these folks that took over the Capitol building no different than how um, how Trump has been approached, right? Which is like he is a moron. Um, You know, people didn't really take him seriously, right? He couldn't string together a sentence. Uh, And very similarly, the the capital, the the insurrectionists on January sixth, right, could be totally seen as a group of loonies. Um, But the closer you look at that footage, you're like, holy crap, they were serious. Uh, You know, they came in with pipe bombs. They had zip ties. They had plans to kidnap politicians, right? Um, You know, and and had they been more organized, right, um, it could have been far more fatal than it was. Um, so I think that there is like there is this weird way in which the, the January 6th was like this logical conclusion to to the Trump presidency. Right. Um, these folks have been saying for a long time that they're going to do something like this. Right. Um, and I just want to say that I think COVID to some degree helped gel together a lot of these different movements, right? So it was really in the anti-lockdown, like I was thinking about the Capitol um, Hill riots of January 6th and looking back, I couldn't help but uh, remember what happened in Michigan, right? There were all of these ways in which um, this was, there, there were other trial runs that these folks have participated in so that January 6th doesn't seem so out of the blue right um i think in michigan uh, a month in after um the the lockdowns were enforced right by the state in order to prevent the spread of covid we saw protesters similarly take to the capitol building um and then you know two weeks later they were able to rush the capitol building right trying to gain entry into the house of representatives so i just think that there's something also uh, developing um in terms of the ways in which all of this is coming together not just the uh the 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 pro trump supporters of course but the the qanon conspiracy the anti lockdown protests right they they are they they they've been gelling together for a while now right and i th- i think covid in many ways has helped them uh come together um so i think that's kind of really important too and for me, when I was, the more I read about what happened on January 6th, I couldn't help but think that QAnon in this weird way provided the revolutionary fervor, right? Because of the ways in which it imagines the storm, the prophecy, right? Um, and it iman- imagines uh, Q- QAnon adherence really taking this revolutionary step. Um, so I just thought all that all that coming together was just like so bizarre and so crazy. Um, and I think we're going, I, I think especially as COVID rages on, um, even under a Biden presidency, we, we're just going to see kind of these kinds of mutations.
3: John, are you prepared to do a reading of QAnon based on the 18th Brumaire? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I was actually, I was listening to a, oh a, a podcast about QAnon recently called QAnon Anonymous. and they Oh, were- I
2: love them. Yeah, they're That's so great. great.
1: Show. They had a guest on talking about how a lot of the French Revolution... Theories were very similar to QAnon theories, just like kind of deranged conspiracy theories about the aristocracy. And just a lot of the country just became obsessed with killing all of them. <laughs> and they did. And they were, they kind of speculated sort of morbidly like, will QAnon lead to the second American Revolution? And, it, you know, it'll be something different than QAnon. It won't be this like totally deranged conservative revolution. It'll be, you know, something more all encompassing. But and th- then like a few years afterwards, you'll have to be like, well, it's kind of a strange way this all started, <laughs> but uh, I guess I got to give those QAnon people some some props on that. Do you think something that's like that's possible? Do you think that some of the uh, the QAnon type people who are are right to you know really distrust the elite and the ruling class and the political class, you know, through their disillusionment with Trump, that hopefully they're experiencing now, come around to a more sy- systematic or rational approach. Or do you think this is just like a segment of the country that is totally lost in phantasmagoria and it's just going to stay there and we just have to like out-organize them?
3: Well, I wasn't joking about the 18th Brumaire. I mean, I think that um, you know, from a Marxist perspective, um, people are forced to take action. They're compelled by forces that they might not understand. Um, And The ideas that they develop to explain what they're doing, what they're against, who they are, what they want, might seem very ridiculous. Um, But um, at the end of the day, um, the material basis of our society compels a certain kind of action. Uh, As for the QAnon, uh, QAnon specifically and its future, um, I mean, it's basically um, going to reach this kind of crossroads that conspiracy movements invariably reached which is like okay are you going to become um, materialist or are you going to become raving anti-semites and it's actually (laughs) amazing that q has gone this long without just becoming an openly anti-semitic religion or movement or whatever it is Uh, because that's that's the path that you almost invariably go down um, if you are if you do not ultimately adopt um, a materialist outlook
2: Yeah. And I think also, I mean, beyond just Q and QAnon, um, I think as long as the the kinds of material forces that we're living with continue to escalate, right? Um, Conspiracy theories are going to try to explain away why the elite act the way they do, how they, you know, repress ordinary people um, are just going to flourish, right? And and of course, um, you know, it's no mistake that they've been mostly pro-Trump, right? Because I do think um, a lot more perhaps than the the left populism, Trump has really been able to galvanize the anti-elite sentiment. Um, So, you know, I I do think as, you know, as again, COVID continues, um, you know, we, we are now seeing a Biden administration. I mean, how many times did he say unity in the inauguration speech? Well, I was actually surprised that he could even like muster the strength to go through the speech and the the whole day. But, you know, I think with the Biden administration, I think, um, you know, the the fact that liberals are at the helm again, right? The Democrats, you know, maybe maybe QAnon will eventually hit its dead end. But um, I think we're going to continue to see these kinds of mutations. And for me, this is what's, um, uh, you know, not to be in despair, but as much as as much as there is so much optimism about the George Floyd rebellion, is that the the flip side of that is that as conditions worsen, we're actually going to see um, far more, um, uh, you know, inser- uh, far more movements from kind of the conspiracy world, far right folks, right? That necessarily won't be all great, and it's not nece- it's not specifically just an American phenomenon, right? When I was looking at um, anti-lockdown protests, they haven't just happened in the United States, right? They've happened, a lot of them in Germany. Germany has been kind of this interesting place where conspiracy and uh, anti-lockdown movements have also come together. Uh, We see them in Japan. I was seeing people like tweeting about QAnon (laughs) and they have like, it's global, right? So, and that's because the conditions um, that we face in the United States are global conditions, right? Um, so while, you know, we want to be hopeful and we find, like, really great things and the multiracial, uh, you know, vision and the, um, of movements like the George Floyd rebellion, we're actually going to see a lot more, um, you know, movements from the opposite end, right, uh, from white folks that don't want, uh, don't want to share uh, that vision of humanity. We're going to see more white folks being drawn to conspiracy theories uh, to, to, an under, to, to a different way of making sense of the despair that they're facing in their lives. And it may not all be liberatory, right? It may actually be uh, really fucked up, you know? Yeah, and I, I think this is
3: a great reason why we need to pay closer attention to the class components of these movements, um, because it's very easy to be taken in by spectacle, um, you know, Richard wolf the the great American Marxist, um, <laughs> made a video um, almost immediately after the Capitol t- uh, takeover announcing that this was the rural proletariat, <laughs> you know, um, and, and responding to, you know, neoliberalism of the Democrats and all the rest. And I mean, Oops. Uh, Richard Wolf's a smart guy. But I, I must inform him that the petty bourgeoisie can also buy and wear hearts. Um, <laughs> well, that's
1: a big critique that that you had of your piece is is you mentioned that the the image of that man with his boots up on Nancy Pelosi's desk appears to be to many to be uh, a man in proletarian garb, and I I understood yeah, this as a- saying it's going to inspire people to identify with this movement as if it's common people seizing the capital. Because there is no class analysis of what what had happened, it's just cons- the the Trump movement is just considered to be uh, the r- rural white poor people. In the in the
0: meantime, as a worker, I'm going to go on a one man campaign to stop the stolen <laughs> valor. I'm going to make it so that Carhartt has to give you a special pass. You have to do some sort of manual labor, maybe like you know one day out of the month, in order to be able to buy that pass. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Sure. Actually, Sean, I'm glad you brought that up because. Um, I've gone to a a few of these Trump events um, and the men that I see there remind me of the kind of guy who owns a construction company Mm -hmm. or a moving company drives a pickup truck that never gets anything put in the back of it and dresses like his workers. Yes.
0: (laughs) You and I have some personal experience with that, having worked together at a moving company. Yeah.
3: Yeah, Like I've met these motherfuckers. Um, And so I mean, I think a mistake a lot of us made in uh, 2016 was flattening Trump's support into this um, this myth of the, r- the rural white American. Um, and I mean, a lot of it reflects basically are um, the acts that we had to grind with the neoliberals and the Democrats. Um, but, you know, it, when you when you approach a situation um, and uh, trying to understand it from the point of view of settling a grudge, you're going to fuck yourself. You're going to fuck up. Um, and I think that um, we can do a much better job analyzing the actual class composition of um, of the this kind of new rightist movement. Actually, a friend of mine, uh, Tom Waters uh, from from CUNY Struggle, wrote this great article. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's going to go up on Specter soon. I was I was trying to get it for Hard Crackers, but you got to get up pretty early to beat the Trotskyists. Um, and <laughs> His argument um, is basically that this was a demonstration of the petty bourgeoisie who were demanding their workers back.
0: <laughs> yes. And he saw that on Staten Island.
3: <laughs> yeah, and Andy's fantastic article on Staten Island was the same. Thank you. They found the same thing. So, I mean, I think that this is – this is a good cause to not get taken in by this, by the spectacle of some, some white dude, dude dressed like shit. You know, I mean, they're not. So all that about Richard
4: <laughs> yeah. Well, I think sometimes people have too simplistic a class analysis of this, right. Or they say, you know, conversely, this is just racism, Jamie, don't be an idiot and say that there's class involved. Um, when, when, Obviously, it's all of those things, right? Like, uh, historically speaking, and today, um, the far right and right-wing populism is a movement really spearheaded and led by the petty bourgeoisie because they are afraid of being proletarianized in an economic crisis. Um, And there are also working class elements to it. um, And to ignore either of those things, I think, is to miss... Uh, what's really happening. And of course the glue that holds this cross class coalition together is whiteness. So it can be kind of confusing to people. And I feel like a lot of liberals have misunderstood me in the past couple of weeks talking about this shit, um, to try to say there are economic factors driving it. Um, there are class factors, but it is a movement spearheaded by the petty bourgeoisie, um, Right. Well,
3: that just means that these people that you're talking to don't understand what whiteness is. Whiteness is a cross class alliance um, between a certain set of workers and uh, a certain set of ruling class motherfuckers. Um, you know, and the the designation that they um, identify under has changed over time. Right. We know the Irish weren't always white. The Italians um the, the Jews. Are the Albanians uh, white? I,
0: I don't know if that's rude to ask. Uh, <laughs> depends on what part of the country you're in. Yeah. What part of the Bronx you're in? Bronx <laughs> <laughs> neck, the nice part. <laughs> they pass, they pass.
3: <laughs> um, yeah. And so like the, uh, I think when a lot of times people talk, when they talk about race, and this includes people on the left, they actually believe in race. They believe that it's real, that it's a real thing. Um, and they don't, everybody says that race is a social construct. It's like an article of faith, but nobody actually really thinks about what it, what it means. Um, and so whiteness really just is, it's a cross class click. So to see, um, the, the, that the arrestees at the Capitol were some of these ruling class motherfuckers, like a literal CEO. Right.
2: Um, and Ashley Babbitt, her case was so crazy, like military veteran, uh, had all this money that she bought, had borrowed for her failing pool business. <laughs> like, yeah, it, you know, really her story was sad. Sorry, not to cut you off, Jared. Her story was sad. And the other woman that died too, she, um, sorry, I like, I got really into the QAnon stuff. So um, the, the other woman that died was like a recovering drug addict. Right. So in that way, you kind of do see a lot of the cross class composition, right? Like these two white women who were just like their lives were really fucked up and miserable you know um and they they stormed the capital right ashley babbitt spent like half her life in the military you know
3: yeah you made my you made my point john it's like i mean the so a lot of folks said hey look at one of the guys who got arrested is ceo one of the guys who got arrested is this and they said this was the petty bourgeoisie if you think these people are working class you're an idiot but for every for every you know um ceo or small business owner, you could find it, that thing, you could find a real hard luck parole. Um, and that makes perfect sense because whiteness is a cross-class alliance.
4: So, yeah, um, at the end of your piece on the Capitol siege, we've been talking about it a little bit, right? We You write about the kind of libidinal thrill and spectacle of seeing these halls of Congress who Everybody fucking hates, right? Like you don't have to be on the right or the left. Most Americans politics are a bundle of contradictions that don't make any sense anyway, but they do think these people are a bunch of stupid assholes. Um, The thrill of seeing them disrespected by these barbarians in proletarian garb, you know, whether or not they're actually part of the proletariat, as we've been talking about. Um, You also talk about the need for communal belonging that things like QAnon serve in our very atomized society. And you conclude with this question, What is our alternative? And it's a hard pill for me to swallow as a leftist because I know the history of the far right. And I know that they jacked that shit from us, right? That the the feeling of being part of something larger than yourself, community, uh, all that stuff. So what is the alternative and how do we take those things back from the right, considering that they belong to us to begin with?
0: Hell yeah. (laughs)
3: Right.
2: <laughs> We're like, uh, we don't fucking know. <laughs> yeah,
3: no, that wasn't a Socratic question on my part. I don't fucking I'm know. I'm like, shit, if
2: we had the answer to that girl.
3: <laughs> a real good answer is like, and I, I, was, I was actually expecting to get a lot of shit for um, ending the article that way. Because, I mean, we've seen the alternative in the last year. I mean, the, um, the mutual aid networks that have uh, developed around, around covid and that dovetailed into um, a lot of great social reproduction projects around the, the rebellion. I think that shit's great. Um, I mean, the rebellion was obviously fucking awesome. Um, I just read, um, I'm writing an article now about the, the, the investigation of um, the, the New York City Department of Investigation into the NYPD's response to the George Floyd rebellion. And I just read the thing cover to cover today And it's like a fucking action novel. It's so exciting. Um, you know, the rebellion was so damn cool every second of it. Uh, and so, um, I mean, there, there there've been plenty of great projects, um, swirling around. Um, I think the main thing, um, that we need to get sharper on is articulating not just what we're against, but what we're actually for, what our vision is, um, And this is actually why the abolitionists came up so big in the George Floyd rebellion, because people are freaking out. Um, As we know, um, as as good materialists, people often take action and then try to figure out why they did it. (laughs) Um, And, you know, decisions make people as much as people make decisions. Um, And so people were flipping out. They were losing. They were saying enough is enough. They were doing all kinds of drastic and dramatic things that they probably would never have imagined themselves doing a few weeks prior. Um, And the abolitionists had an answer basically for like, okay, we're here to tell you what you're mad about, um, very specifically, what what it is, what its history is, um, how it can be transformed, and here are some concrete steps you can take to affect this transformation. Um, It's a remarkably tight worldview that they present. And it's no coincidence. I mean, a lot of these folks, especially critical resistance folks, have spent the better part of 20 years with like in dialogue with each other, sharing ideas um, and building up a, co- a very coherent view of what the world is and how it can be transformed. Um, and I think that that's that's something that, that that we need to do and we need to provide uh, for people. And I know um, this might seem a little old fashioned, um, but I actually think that that On a long enough timeline, ideas and politics do actually matter and are necessary um, for orienting the struggles that are produced by capitalism.
2: So I don't don't know, I've been reflecting, uh, reflecting a lot on a few things. The first is that um, I'm not I don't think that we're going to see a decrease in movements. While it's been true that the uh, George Floyd rebellion has Uh, What was wonderful right in all these ways, uh, but did not manage to seep other areas of social life right like it did not manage to connect to, you know. uh, The struggles that teachers are facing right now as they're being forced to go to work the struggles of other essential workers, the fact that covid pandemic is raging uh, there's little unemployment, I mean. How, how long did it take for us to get this st- second stimulus check, right? And which I haven't even gotten, by the way, IRS, like, can we get it together, boo? Um, you know, so I think there, COVID is is continuing to rage on. And, um, you know, so I, I think just in that, that's a possibility to start uh, connecting and gelling things, right? Which, of course, we know don't only happen at the level of rhetoric, they also happen at the level of action, right? So part of me is like, we have to wait and see what regular folks do, right? Um, And that's something that to bring it back to the Heartcrackers Project uh, is what we've been trying to document, right? Like, how are folks thinking, dealing with the pandemic? What are the contradictions um, that are emerging in everyday life through this moment of upheaval, right? When, When was the last when was the last time that the world has gone through this? It's important to note that Biden and Kamala will be in power. They will try to bring us to the state of quote unquote, normalcy, uh, which will be impossible. Um, I mean, how will they deal with the fact that so many Americans are unemployed? Um, So many vaccine rollout has been really slow, right? There's, There's such a crisis that they're faced with and on top of that, they're faced with the, you know, with a looming economic recession, right? Economically, the United States is not doing very well. Um, so these are all issues that are not going to go away. Um, so I imagine the next the next few years um, unraveling all kinds, all kinds of things being unraveled, right? Um, and I think there, Jared is right to point that you know what what um, leftists, what ultra leftists can do is to provide some clarity for folks, um, you know, taking on these issues, right? Um, figuring out ways in which we could kind of gel these struggles together, um, and facing to the sober reality that 70 million people did vote for Trump. Right, um, and uh, they voted regardless of the fact that he was blatantly racist, misogynist, wanted to build a wall. Um, you know, so there is, you know, oftentimes it could be difficult to be optimistic in the face of that, right? Uh, but given the pandemic, given that the Democrats will do perhaps very little um, to address just the the stark uh, reality that that ordinary Americans are faced with. Um, not to mention just how the pandemic is going to throw so many states into fiscal crisis. We could imagine all kinds of things uh, coming coming out, right? Um, so I think it's just being prepared and thinking about how, how to intervene in those struggles, right? And how to help them uh, expand and connect together, I think will be an important role that we could play. Um, I don't have a crystal ball <laughs> to, to envision any other kind of alternatives, but I, I do think you know uh, helping gel these struggles together is important and and providing a vision, right? And um, lastly, I just want to say, I think this is also a really good moment to push back a little bit and to push beyond the social democratic visions. Um, and to push back that being really the the end line in terms of the political imaginary. Um, you know, and again, a lot of love for like DSA folks, uh, you know, like a lot of, you know, I have friends of mine who I you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, you're, you have that social democratic line. But I, I do think it's really important to just push um, to, to push that to its limits, too. Right. And hopefully uh, have some of those folks join our side as well.
4: Yeah, well, that is what we're kind of trying to do with the uh, communist caucuses in DSA and the sort of left caucus network that we've been forming. Right. Because that seems like the place that a lot of people come to socialist politics. And I think it's important to have communists there, you know, leading people in a more revolutionary direction. Um, Well, you kind of answered what my last question was, because we like to end on a call to action. so maybe I won't ask it. What do you guys think? I've got,
1: I've got kind of an, something to end it with. Uh, yeah, okay. Last week, I went to Hunt's Point where the uh, the workers at this large produce distribution warehouse that they say like 60% of the produce of the New York metro area comes through this warehouse. And the, the Teamsters there, there, there's about 1,400 of them uh, voted to go on strike because their, their pay increase was too small. They wanted a pay increase of about three times as much. And they said that, uh, you know, everyone says that they're heroes and essential workers. But this pay increase is, is uh, really insulting. So they went on strike for a higher pay increase. And over the course of the week, their, their picket line out, out front of where trucks go in became this kind of like gathering place. It's a very difficult place to get to in the, in the Bronx, became this gathering place of something that. You might imagine as like what the left really looks like. Rank and file workers, along with Teamster Union leadership, DSA people, you know, coming and preparing food, DSA type politicians like AOC went there twice. And then like a lot of local politicians who were, you know, if they don't have the same politics of AOC, they were certainly trying to sound like they did. And then just assorted communists and radicals from around the city who want to show up and support in any way they could. And the night that I went, Hawk Newsom and, uh, and his sister, who I, I forgot her name, unfortunately, from Black Lives Matter, like the official Black Lives Matter New York chapter, came and spoke and talked about how during Black Lives Matter and during the uprising, they saw tons of union people there side by side, and they believed that those struggles are the same thing. So, you know, sometimes when people talk about the left, it's so abstract, and I don't know what they mean, and I don't even know if it exists. I like to think that what I saw this week at Hunts Point um, and it looks like they, they won on their, their demand of getting a, a $1 uh, increase it is something that we could say is, is a, a collection of social movements that we could say is the left. And they really do have each other's backs in a, in a way that's at times tangible. Sorry for being optimistic. We're not supposed to do that. No, that
2: was nice. And I think I saw some champagne bottles. So that's definitely my kind of left gathering. Oh yeah, they were drinking. Pop-pop bottles. They were drinking
1: long before the, the victory announcement.
2: <laughs> that's exactly even more right. It's a good, it's the kind of gathering I want to be in.
3: It's a nice reminder that um, these folks with the blue checks, no offense to any present company, of course. <laughs>
4: but... Oh, none to
3: Spend all fucking day Just tweeting the minutiae of their lives Like they're praying to an absent God or something um, Are really there uh, They do not represent The average leftist or Person with left sensibilities in the United States um, and this Is actually uh, something That really um, attracted me to, to Noel and his theory of social Change which is that um, You know your your neighbors And friends and the people you ride the um, the train with, and maybe even your old racist grandma, you know, I mean, if given the opportunity to take action, um, you know, um, is just as likely to choose um, a liberatory path as they are to, to choose the forces of reaction. Um, and that's, yeah. I mean, as long as we, as we keep that option open um, then building a new society um, remains a, a viable possibility within our own lifetimes.
1: Awesome. Jared and, and Jana, thanks so much for joining us. Excellent, just excellent stuff. I
2: want to plug in um, just because sorry, I don't mean to cut you all go off. I just want to plug in just because um of what Jared said about Noel, and at Hardcrackers again continuing that project of documenting those contradictions, right? And the possibility for folks to to turn the me- to turn over the mess we're in. Just want to plug in that you can totally go to hardcrackers.com and check out our material and if you're so also inclined You could click the about us uh, and you could also hit up with a hit us up with a donation if you enjoy um, some of our writing and some of our work.
1: And you can order the journal, too. It's a physical journal.
2: Yeah, we're coming up with a new issue. uh, Actually, two issues, one issue that will be dedicated to Noel uh, and another issue specifically looking at um, 2021 and all of, you know, all of the things that are happening um, and documenting various facets of American life. Under this in, insane, turbulent time,
0: you guys are maybe the perfect podcasting guests. Not only being clear and concise and eloquent and intelligent about everything, but you know perfectly how to get those plugs in right at the end in a very digestible uh, fashion. So, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. This is one of the I think one of the best episodes we've done recently.
3: It was it was an honor to be on the show for the first time ever. <laughs> <laughs>
5: Family. So, have you ever prayed to the night sky under one of them cold street lights, What's another stolen car drive by? What's your home and said, This is where I'll die. I ain't your kind of wife. And by the way, I had to grow up, so who's really been slighted? Society better learn to recognize the difference.